After the sermon, we'll sing Psalm 92, 1 and 2. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, hallowed be your name. It's a petition that we are familiar with from the Lord's Prayer. The word hallow, however, is not a word which we use in daily speech. What does it mean? What would the children say that it means? After all, our Our language needs to be contemporary. We need to understand what we're saying. Hallowed be your name. Well, that word hallow comes from a word which means holy. That root word holy is at the basis of the word hallow. And what is holy is in a class all by itself. What is holy is above the ordinary. It stands all alone. Just like in the Old Testament times, the Lord impressed upon his people Israel that when they gathered together for worship at the sanctuary, that was not something ordinary. It was something extraordinary. It was something very special. That's why at the holy place, even the utensils were considered special. They were used for sacred and divine service, and therefore they were in a class all by themselves, and they had to be treated as such. They had to be treated with respect. And so it is that when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying that God's name may be treated as God's name deserves. Namely, that he be treated as in a class all by himself, highly exalted, holy, deserving of complete respect and reverence. And really, that's what we're praying for in this petition. We are praying that God may receive all honor, glory, respect, and reverence. Hallowed be your name. That's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. That's where we start. If we're going to pray to God... What's our attitude toward God? And the very first thing we say is, Hallowed be your name. I summarize the message as follows. The first petition, Hallowed be your name. We'll see that we're praying for three things. We're praying that we may perceive God's name in our heart. Secondly, that we may praise God's name with our mouth. And thirdly, that we may promote God's name with our walk. 
Hallowed be your name. This petition means that we're praying for three things. First of all, that we may perceive God's name in our heart. Secondly, that we may praise God's name with our mouth. And thirdly, that we may promote God's name with our walk. One thing that we have to be absolutely sure of this afternoon, brothers and sisters, is that we understand what we are speaking about when we refer to God's name. Hallowed be your name. We need to understand that this is not just about a word, a name. That we use God's name with respect, that we treat God's name with respect. The name God, Yahweh, Jesus, Holy Spirit. We're praying about more than just a word. We're praying about the person of God. We're praying that God's person may be hallowed. God's name is his person, and God's person is evident from his name. It's all one. So we're praying about God's person, but it's very Striking that in the Bible, often we read about the name of God in such a way that it is so closely aligned with the person of God. For example, when God came to Moses at the burning bush and called Moses to lead Israel out of the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, then God identified himself and gave Moses the name that he was supposed to mention to the people of Israel. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, you can read that Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, it's verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God gave Moses his name to pass on to the people of Israel because his name said so much about his person. And that's why I say, God's name is his person. And his person is evident from his name. God had made promises to Abraham. And God was going to live up to those promises. That's why God sent Moses. God remembered his people in Israel as the faithful, covenant-keeping God, and that's expressed in God's name. I am who I am. He is the God who is faithful to his promises, and his people can build their lives on him. In the book of Psalms, we find the same thing. In Psalm 20, 
Verse 1, we read, May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And we understand that this is a reference to the person of God. We have the same in the words with which we begin our worship service, the so-called votum. Psalm 124, verse 8, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. One more reference. This one from Proverbs. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. What the writer is really saying is, God is that strong tower. God is that fortress for his people. And his people find refuge in him. And now we are praying in this petition, hallowed be your name. That is, we are praying that we may rightly know God. That's how the Catechism explains it in Lord's Day 47. Grant that we may rightly know you. In other words, we are praying that we may perceive God's name in our heart. We are praying that our eyes may be open to know God. And this is a prayer that we must pray continually. Because we can easily be blinded. We need to know God. It's a prayer that we need to pray about ourselves. That we may continue to see God in faith. It's a prayer that we need to pray about our children and young people, that they may grow up to see God in a mature faith. That they may hallow God. That they may rightly know God. And how do we know God? Well, that's where the Belgian Confession, Article 2, comes in this afternoon, because... We know God by two means, in two ways, from his general manifestation and from his special revelation. Article 2 of the Belgian Confession talks about the two so-called books, the book of creation and the book of divine revelation, Holy Scripture, and the Belgian Confession says that we know God by these two means. First of all, by the creation, preservation, and government of this universe, which is as a most beautiful book before our eyes. When you look out on a beautiful sun-filled winter day, and you see the sun shimmering off the snow, Do you see God? We are praying in this petition, grant that I may perceive you in creation. And this is the, what the Bible tells us in Psalm 19. 
We sang of it this afternoon. A well-known psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Then the psalm goes on to say, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In other words, the psalmist is saying, Creation speaks a language all its own. And we are praying here that we may perceive God, that we may rightly know God. Paul writes about that too in his letter to the Romans. Romans 1, verse 20. It's even quoted in the Belgian Confession, Article 2. Paul writes to the Romans in that opening chapter of his letter, and he says, Listen, God has not left himself without witness. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God's power, God's divine nature, can be clearly perceived in creation. In other words, says Psalm 19 and Romans 1 verse 20, creation gives us the message, God exists. There is a God. Now you might say, that's self-evident to all of us. We are all Christians. Well, that might be so, brothers and sisters, but you need to realize that every generation in the church needs to come to that same confession. The eyes must be opened and prayers must be lifted up to God in heaven that we may rightly know you, also that the next generation may rightly know God, that they may see God, that they may perceive God in their hearts as they look out into creation and see the beauty of His work. God has not left Himself without witness, but... The Belgic Confession goes on to say in Article 2, God has made himself more clearly and fully known in his divine word, in Holy Scripture. Because, although we can see the divine power of God and the divine nature of God in creation, creation does not tell us who this God is. Is it the God of the scriptures? Is it Buddha? Is it the God of the Hindus? Is it Allah? Who is this God? And that's where you need the Bible. The Bible reveals to us the name of this creator God. The Bible tells us 
on its first pages, who made this world? And throughout the Bible, we learn about the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God three in one, three persons in the one divine being, co-equal, co-eternal, of the same substance. This is God, and this is the Creator. And all three persons of the Holy Trinity were involved in the creation of this world. The Father, the Word, the Son, and the Spirit. The three in one. The Bible also tells us, however, of what happened, the fall into sin the need for a savior, that there is a savior, that there is a way of salvation, the explanation of evil and wickedness in this world, the explanation of all the brokenness in this fallen world, war, political unrest, sickness, famine. The Bible explains the reason there was an original fall. But there is hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Acts 4 verse 12 that there is only one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. It's the name that the Apostle Paul proclaimed on the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. The only name in which there is salvation. Article 2 of the Belgian Confession says, God has more fully and clearly revealed himself to us in his holy word because he has revealed himself to us not only as the God of creation but also as the God of recreation. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, brothers and sisters, he came into this world as our chief prophet and teacher, to say it with the words of Lord's Day 12, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And when our Savior was with his 12 disciples for the last time in Jerusalem at the last Passover, the last supper, just before his arrest and crucifixion, as recorded in the Gospel of John, our Savior prayed that so-called high priestly prayer to the Father in heaven. Not only did the Lord Jesus Christ stand up there at the last Passover and demonstrate to his disciples what love is and the kind of love that he wants his universal church to have for one another, but the Lord Jesus also stood up and prayed. He prayed. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Our Savior went on to pray, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you. 
And then our Savior went on to say in John 17, verse 6, in his prayer to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Christ prayed to the Father at the end of his public ministry on this earth and said, Eternal life is to know the Father through Jesus Christ. And Christ prayed, I have revealed that. And then the Lord Jesus went to the cross. And after Pentecost, that gospel goes out to the ends of the earth with the call to repent and believe. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying that we and others may rightly know God. That we may perceive God in our hearts, in faith. And if that's the case, brothers and sisters, that God has more fully and more clearly revealed himself to us in his holy word, then that also means that we must be in the word. And if we want anybody else to know that name, to know Jesus Christ in faith, we have to present them with the word. They need to be taught in the word, and they need to be encouraged to be in the word in personal Bible reading and study. Because that's the only way that people will perceive God in their hearts. And we are praying for a blessing on our study of God's word. We pray, hallowed be your name, grant that we may rightly know you, but then indirectly, brothers and sisters, we are also laying an obligation upon ourselves to be in the Word. To read the Word at home, faithfully. To study the Word. To read good, reformed Christian literature that would help us understand the Word. And we might ask ourselves, as we're reflecting on this petition, do we do that? Because really, ultimately, this is not just about our salvation, but it is ultimately about God's glory. As Christians, we need to be in the Word so that we can rightly perceive God as He has revealed Himself to us in creation and in redemption. We want to see God's glory so that we may hallow Him in our lives. That's why the Catechism says, grant us first of all that we may rightly know you I'm skipping a sentence now. 
in all your works, that's creation and redemption, in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Those attributes of God shine forth in creation and or recreation. I don't have to go through that whole list of attributes here this afternoon, but just to give one example here, God's wisdom is seen not only in the beauty and intricacy of creation, the fact that if you were to take a little snowflake off the ground, it is so intricate, it is so beautiful, and it sparkles so beautifully, and they say there are no two snowflakes exactly the same. Wow. That's our God. He does that. That's God's wisdom. He has made it so beautifully and so wisely. But then we also think about his work of redemption. The fact that he sent his only son into this world to save us from sin and Satan. And we realize that's his wisdom. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter. What God has prepared for us in Jesus Christ has not even entered into the mind of man. It's God's wisdom. And we're praying in this petition, Father, hallowed be your name. Grant that I may rightly know you, that I may perceive you in all your glory as that is evident in creation and recreation and revere you. Furthermore, we are praying that we may praise God with our mouths. Because this knowledge of God in our hearts must also come out of our mouths. And one of the ways that happens is by singing. Have you ever thought about why we sing in church? Why is singing so important? Why was it done in the Old Testament? Why do we have 150 psalms that God himself has given us? Why were they singing in the Old Testament? And why does Paul say in his letter to the Colossians to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms to the glory of God? So evidently, the New Testament church is to be a singing church too. Why do we do that? Because... It's praise for God. That's how we can summarize what the catechism says in that one line I skipped a moment ago when I was reading from the catechism. Grant us, first of all, that we may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you. We praise God with our mouths. And so we sing. We sing. We sang this afternoon of Psalm 34. And the psalmist says in verse 1 and 3 that he wants to speak of God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
I think also of the Israelites after they had crossed the Red Sea, after they had escaped from Pharaoh. Pharaoh and all his hosts were lying there dead, but Israel had crossed over the sea on dry ground. They had been redeemed. They had been saved. And they sang the song of Moses. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 15. I'll quote verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Moses and the people of Israel sang that song to the Lord to praise Him. And then Miriam, the prophetess, as verse 20 and 21, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Israel rejoiced in the Lord and praised Him for redemption. And we find the same thing in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, also chapter 15, we read about the song of Moses and the Lamb. Aptly called the song of Moses because Revelation 15 shows us the saints standing at the sea of crystal as victors over sin and Satan. And they sing the song of Moses, verse 3 and 4. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The church is a singing church. The church is also a confessing church. We confess our faith. Again, we can think of the Psalms. Psalm 66, verse 16, where the psalmist speaks about telling what the Lord has done. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what He has done for my soul. I also think of what the early Christians did after Stephen was martyred in Jerusalem. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. The church was scattered, and we read in Acts 8, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They evangelized. They spoke of their hope. They confessed the name of Jesus Christ. And isn't this also what Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the passage that we read this afternoon, where Peter says that God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. The light of salvation. And then Peter says in verse 9, 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may confess. And isn't that the definition of a Christian? There's Christ on the one hand, our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And there is us as Christians who are called to be prophets who confess the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. And we are praying in this petition, hallowed be your name. Grant that we may sanctify, glorify, and praise your name. And then there's one more thing. And that is that in this petition we are praying that we may promote God's name with our walk. The Catechism expresses this by saying in Lord's Day 47 that we are praying that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. The reference to our thoughts, words, and actions is a reference to our walk, how we live. That really is everything there is to our life. We think, we speak, we act. And we are praying that all of that, our whole life, may be to the praise and glory of God. It's very easy, brothers and sisters, for us to dishonor God's name by our walk of life. Not only directly in the sense that if our thoughts, words, and actions are not God-glorifying, God is not glorified in our lives, but also indirectly in the sense that people are watching us as Christians. We all know the saying, actions speak louder than words. And if we claim to be Christians, but our talk and our actions are essentially unchristian, we discredit not only ourselves as Christians, but especially God. I want you to notice this afternoon how the Catechism puts that. The Catechism puts it negatively, and that indicates that this happens easily. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. If the catechism had put it positively, and maybe would have preferred that, but if the catechism would have put it positively, then the catechism would have said, Grant that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is always honored and praised because of us. But no, the Catechism puts it negatively that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but 
always honored and praised, thereby indicating how easily we don't promote God's name with our walk. And so we pray, grant that we may promote your name with our walk. And we pray that the Holy Spirit may work in our lives. That will do so. Notice also that the catechism points to the fact that this requires effort, concentration, focus. Because the catechism says, grant that we may so direct our life. It's the imagery of the marksman. That's what the authors of the catechism had in mind. You either have a bow and arrow or a rifle and you aim at something and you shoot at the target. We are praying that we may so aim our thoughts, words, and actions that God's name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. In other words, we need to think about that. We need to concentrate on that. We need to be focused on that. And it's not for nothing, brothers and sisters, that the Catechism speaks in this way because the Apostle Peter does so in his first letter in the passage that we read this afternoon. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 verse 12 keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. That verse is introductory to what follows. Because then, as you heard this afternoon, Paul goes on to say, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. To say it in modern language, the Apostle Paul is saying, as Christians, live as good citizens. Interestingly, one of the questions that is sometimes asked at church visitation, we're almost into that season again, when some representatives of this classes go to the different local churches of this classes. One of the questions that is sometimes asked of a council is, what kind of reputation does your church have in the community? What do the civil authorities think about this church? And what kind of contact do you have with the civil authorities? There's a good reason for that question because Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And one example of that that he gives is, live as good citizens. Furthermore, he goes on to say, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then he goes on to speak about 
enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. And he says, bear that as a Christian. So not only does Paul say, keep your conduct honorable as citizens, but also keep your conduct honorable as employees. Remember that you are called to glorify God. Well, that is quite a calling. And this is what we're praying about. That's why we pray. Grant that we may perceive God's name in our heart. Grant that we may praise God's name with our mouth. Grant that we may promote God's name with our walk. May God be hallowed in our lives every day. To him be the glory, now and forever. Amen.